Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Brown, and with me I have... David Crowther of The History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the King of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, <laughs> even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But... There's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do Scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England... As she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Just before we start the show, I need to remind you that 10 American Presidents is part of the Agora Podcast Network. It's a network of great independently produced podcasts. This month, our featured podcast is The History of England by my good friend David Crowther. So, 
If you um, would like to know more about how the Anglish became the English, why don't you subscribe to the History of England podcast today? Secondly, I would just like to remind you that you can show your support in a financial manner by going onto patreon.com and becoming one of the patrons of 10 American presidents. Any little bit of extra money that you have would be gratefully received. So that's patreon.com, become a patron of 10 American presidents today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Hello and welcome back to 10 American Presidents. Every now and then we like to do a special show when we have uh, one of our blockbuster narrators where you, the listener, has a chance of a right to reply, to ask a question to him about uh, the president, which he's covered in a previous issue. And of course, we have favourite son of the show, David Petrusha, author, historian and all-round good guy, uh, to um, answer your questions on the life of Theodore Roosevelt. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Good, good, good. Um, so it's been a couple of months, well, a few months since we last spoke to you. What have you been up to in the intervening period? We've been working on Theodore Roosevelt getting the next book out the door called TR's Last War, which is about his final years. Mm-hmm. And we've been going through the manuscript with the copy editing and the proofing of the PDFs and all that. And so we're we're drawing ever nearer, and the excitement is building, at least here. Um, so what are you, are you looking at? New York Times bestseller list by the end of the year? I, well, I hesitate to be so bold, <laughs> but I, I think it may do very well. I think, it, I think it's a very compelling story. He's a figure who uh, kind of sells books on his own, really, and... I think we have uncovered a bunch of stuff in, in this book where, um, you know, it, it's stuff that people haven't really looked at before. That's what I try to do is, is, is go where other authors haven't and just what interests me. And hopefully it will interest the reader and, and people will find it piquant and uh, human and somewhat different and intriguing. When one is traveling in the foothills of a mountain range, it is difficult to appreciate the height and grandeur of the peak. It is only at a distance that we are able to judge clearly a relative height and pick out the main peaks of the range. So it is with great men, their lives and works. We may appreciate in a way their greatness while living, but the true measure of it comes to us only with time. Theodore Roosevelt was the most dominating and inspiring figure in American life since Abraham Lincoln. Dominating and inspiring because he stood for the square deal. Because his sympathy was as broad as the world. 
limited neither by race nor creed. So, David, we have um, a whole set of questions uh, put to you, some via email, some via our Facebook group, and some via SpeakPipe. Uh, the first is from Stephen Guerra. Now, I know that you don't like um, to too much guessing, too much alternative history, but I think this question is, is pretty important, really. And Stephen says, given that there was a a definite possibility that McKinley could have survived if he had done what would have happened to TR in your opinion TR by right should have just faded away like some old soldier MacArthur buried in the vice presidency but you know that assumes that Theodore Roosevelt is a normal person and a normal politician and he isn't I think he continues as a gadfly. He would look for some other opportunities. But his accession to the presidency really becomes a tremendous long shot. He might very well simply become... There's a new book out uh, focusing on the literary Theodore Roosevelt. And he might just retreat to that and the occasional political appointment. He'd been a sort of appointed guy, uh, with the exception of being the governor of New York, where he's appointed to the Navy Department and to the Civil Service Commission and the Police Commission in New York. So I think he sort of goes back, retreats to that mode of TR operations. But does he become president? No. Mm. Moving forward to 2018, it's hard not to think that Theodore Roosevelt would have been against some of the domestic tenants of the Trump administration. Um, He was definitely a trust buster and he was pro-conservation. Do you think his reputation as a trust buster, as the trust buster in chief, is deserved? He gets the ball rolling. So in that regard, yes, but it's overblown and it become, that becomes recognized fairly early in history because his successor, William Howard Taft, busts more trusts. He goes after United States Steel as TR did not. And that's one of the things which separates uh, Roosevelt from Taft and causes the breakup because TR is very friendly to that arm of Wall Street and he regards the action of Taft and his Justice Department as unfriendly to him. Uh, Later on, you see in 1916, when the breakup occurs, not of TR and the Republicans, the Stan Pat Republicans, but TR and the progressives, his tribe of Republicans, that many of them, like Amos Pinchot, Gifford uh, Pinchot's more radical brother, uh, the the attacks on TR for being too cozy with Wall Street. So, yes, he gets the ball rolling, uh, and he but he doesn't carry it through as much as his his next two successors. And I mean, we're seeing now, particularly with not so much manufactured industries or railroads or communication because we've had deregulation of of the airlines under 
under Reagan, and it was supported by Teddy Kennedy. Um, but we're going to see, I think, more of a pressure to deregulate big internet, you know, big Facebook, Google, all these things. These are becoming monopolies uh, on the level of what the monopolies were uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. It'll be interesting to see how we deal with that, how the government deals with that. I think it's a much trickier question than breaking up standard oil where you, oh, you do uh, break it up geographically. So you have standard oil of Ohio or New Jersey or something like that, or you break away this part of the of the industry, like the motion picture industry in the 1940s, where you sever the distribution arm from the production arm, where you don't have a horizontal monopoly, you have a vertical monopoly, where you say the theaters will be separated from uh, the studios. In uh, terms of Google and Facebook, I don't know how you do that. I think it will be up to uh, smarter heads than mine to determine that. Or is it really a question of the marketplace where I was just looking this morning to see the rise and fall of Kmart online, not uh, just to see their history online and and how they've shrunk from, you know, wasn't at the beginning of 20th century. They had 2000 stores and now they have 400 new things arise like a Walmart or Target. We can't always know, look into the future and see how the big guys are going to be taken down and taken down faster than, than we know. I mean, hey, we can all remember when AOL, well, those of, of a certain age can remember when AOL was the big dog online. And that's long since gone. Question from Joe Jamsky. This is from the Facebook group. He says he mostly wants to know about how racist and religious every president was. What was his impact on natives and such? Um, just to give a little, another bit of context to this, I'm always kind of struck by the fact that TR is known as a progressive. And you did put some colour to this by saying that a progressive in the early 20th century is not a progressive as we would necessarily understand it now. But did TR talk about race uh, and religious freedom at all, much? Or of, did he talk about it of any importance during his presidency? Well, let's, let's take talk about religion. First, I think it's the easier topic. TR is a religious person. He's a churchgoer. He's a bit of an indifferentist, uh, to use a phrase which isn't used too much in conversation, but which means he's he's not all that locked into a specific denomination of Protestantism, where he bounces between the Dutch Reform faith and the Presbyterians were very close and he's buried in a Episcopal church down the road and he's married in a Unitarian church his first his first wedding so he's all over the lot he's very friendly to Catholic groups and there's a Catholic cardinal he's he's very friendly with I think it's Cardinal Gibbons uh, maybe Cardinal Ireland of, of Minnesota and so he's really opposed to 
any sort of religious discrimination. Also, his administration is defending the rights of, and this is interesting. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I wasn't aware of this until very recently. Of naturalized Russian Jews in America. And the issue there was that when they traveled abroad, the czarist government, which was phenomenally anti-Semitic, would not recognize their American citizenship, would not afford them protection as American citizens, and would treat them as still subjects of the czar. And so there was a lot of back and forth at the beginning, at the first decade of the 20th century on that issue. So TR... T.R. will continence no discrimination in regards to uh, issues of faith. He's very good on that. In terms of race, he's, he's the fellow who invites Booker T. Washington to dinner in the White House in the beginning of his presidency, which is phenomenally controversial, at least in the American white South. Um, he's regarded as uh, just you know, beyond the pale, to use a mixed metaphor there uh, um, in terms of race relations. But he's not 
fully convinced of the equality of the races as groups. In fact, not at all. You take a look at some of the conversations in private uh, uh, correspondence he has, say, with Owen Wister, the novelist, the fellow who wrote The Virginian, and and you can really pick up on, on some racism there. But he realizes that there are black men and women of substance who deserve to rise, who have rights, that all, all black people have certain rights, um, and, and that if a person has talent, he should be able to rise to the level of, of where that talent and where his initiative will take him. So he's very unsympathetic to a lot of the white racism on that part. There's an interesting incident in the book, which is this. Um, the Because of World War I, you start to see a black migration from the south to the north. One, like, why shouldn't they leave? It's not very good there, uh, the circumstances for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So you go north where you have a modicum of freedom more economic opportunity, you know, coming to the North, just like the immigrants from Europe would come to the North to, to earn a better living. So with World War One and the immigrant influx cut off, you see black cheap labor going into the factories of the North. And in many cases, they are used as strike breakers, causing tremendous pushback from the, the whites in the, in the labor unions. There is an incident in East St. Louis in 1917 where tremendous violence is visited on the black community for those reasons. And when TR is appearing at a public gathering in New York City with Samuel Gompers, the head of the American Federation of Labor, Gompers starts to say, well, you have to understand why this happened. And TR goes absolutely ballistic on stage in front of a in front of a live audience and almost physically attacks Gompers on the stage. And later on afterwards, TR is fuming and he said, Boy, I wish I'd laid more hands on him than that. Uh, so he, he can become uh, very vociferous in regard to uh, black rights when the violence is is put on on blacks as it was in that progressive populist era his la- one of his last public appearances in fact is for a group of of, of black americans african americans who are taking part in the war efforts or had taken part in the war efforts and quite most remarkably uh, hosting that event on stage together uh, is W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, imagine that uh, meeting, which sounds like something out of an alternate uh, history account, but there they are, and that's one of T.R.'s last appearances. He's also invited to an address an event in those last days by Marcus Garvey, which is interesting. And uh, But unfortunately, T.R. is so physically sick. He's on his last legs at that point. He cannot attend. And he just uh, sends us a, a message saying, oh, you can read this from one of my letters or one of my newspaper articles. And this is the message that you can send to your group. But I, I really can't attend at this point. But so it's, it's a mixed bag 
uh, and um, it, it he's obviously a man of his times. Don't expect him to be a man of our times. Very lastly, uh, Joe asked about uh, his uh, opinion, his thoughts on Native uh, Americans. Do we have any ed- 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 any evidence, sorry, of um, what he thought about the first peoples of the United States? Huh. That's a that's something which I did not come across very often, and fixed uh, so primarily on the last years of his life which dealt with the um, war, World War One, that was not coming up at all. I mean, he was out of office. You didn't see citizenship for the uh, America, uh, Native Americans, for the Indians, until the Coolidge administration. One of his closest friends, TR's closest friends, was General Leonard Wood, who was, as they said in those days, an old Indian fighter uh, in the Southwest and had taken part in the uh, campaign to capture Geronimo. Uh, so I would, I would think he would have... Um, it would be interesting to see having him been a, a Westerner at one point in North Dakota whether he had the sympathy for the uh, warriors and, and the the people of the plains of the that the Indians were, or whether he had uh, absorbed the uh, anti uh, feelings of a lot of the Western settlers. When you when you first posed the question, however, I was thinking about a different sort of of Native American. I was sort of thinking of the way I'm a Native American of simply somebody born here. And mm-hmm. in that World War One era, uh, the lead up to it and in the war, you had a big talk about hyphenated Americans and whether uh, German Americans or Irish Americans or even Jewish Americans, I guess, although that didn't come up too much as to where they stood on the war. Jewish America, uh, German Americans, obviously, because would they have been with the Kaiser? Irish Americans, a little less so. Uh, they would have not been so much for the Germans, but they would have been against the English. Jewish Americans, because a lot of them were uh, of German origin or the more influential uh, ones were, but also because of what I mentioned earlier, that because the czarist regime was so anti-Semitic, uh, you could not count on, on Jewish Americans to be really thrilled uh, for America to be coming into the war on the side of the czar. And, and really... Uh, we don't come in until the czar is is pretty much out of uh, out of things. The the uh, first uh, Russian Revolution of 1917. Uh, it's sort of co- it's very coincidental, but it's very convenient for our support of the war effort that we are not on the side of, of this great authoritarian oppressive uh, regime. There's a hope for for Russia uh, being being democratic, but Roosevelt has uh, some very interesting correspondence very, very near to the end of his life with Madison Grant, the uh, the great eugenicist um, and and racist. His book is The Passing of the Great Race. It's, it's a seminal racist work in um, the history of racism, really, modern racism. Hitler is, is a fan of Madison Grant, and so is Theodore Roosevelt. 
Madison Grant was an upper-class environmentalist early on, like Theodore Roosevelt. So they know each other from way back. And in fact, Theodore Roosevelt does a blurb for Madison Grant's The Passing of the Great Race, which is like, whoa, startling. But uh, Grant writes to TR about the uh, value, the superiority of native Anglo-Saxon Americans as fighters in World War I. And TR blows his cork at him and says, look, the uh, Irish-American or even the German-American or any of these immigrants are just as good a fighter as any of the Anglo-Saxon stock which we are sending to France. And my boys, my son is over there in France and he serves with these guys and he knows this and believe in me, uh, once they're Americans, they're Americans and they are just as patriotic as anyone else, which is a consistent message by him. It's what if you come to America and if you get with the program, by God, you're an American and don't let anyone say otherwise. Let us move on, sir. A very full, full answer. Mr. Hughes, upon you, rancor and bigotry, racial animosities and intolerance are the deadly enemies of true democracy. There can be no friendly cooperation if they exist. They are enemies more dangerous than any external force, for they undermine the very foundation of our democratic effort. New York Governor Charles Evans Hughes was potentially a candidate to follow TR in 1908, and he shared a lot of Roosevelt's progressivism, but Roosevelt disliked him and considered him to be too independent. Why? Why didn't they rub along? Well, they don't get along in part in personality. I mean, TR is is so effervescent and charismatic and, uh, you know, the Hughes is the bearded uh, icicle or iceberg. He's a very cold fish. So in terms of personality, they do not get along. And TR... Um, later on in 1916, he's very loath to endorse Hughes for the presidency as well. And he's been burned by having endorsed one guy, Taft, which didn't work out. So he's probably wary of doing it again. But in 1908, what has happened is that TR had, once Hughes becomes governor, there's a question about his reforming the insurance department. And to do so, the fellow who's in the department heading it has to resign, and he doesn't want to. Uh, in many ways, the governorship was was restrained in terms of appointments and offices uh, back then. But he's got to get this guy out. And TR realizes he can put some pressure on him, uh, this office holder, to get him out by, by using federal patronage. And the story gets into the papers and there's a real contretemps and misunderstanding about TR's role in this and what Hughes has to say about it. It's printed in the New York Post, which is a paper which is run by Oswald Garrison Villard, who's very anti-TR. And there's bad blood between Hughes and Roosevelt based on that issue and based on some other issues. So much so that when 
Hughes is about ready to announce, well, not really to announce, but to have a big speech, you know, kind of launching, but not launching his presidential campaign in 1908. He's going to have that to a, a big Republican dinner and club in New York City. What TR does is that morning he releases an incredibly incendiary, radical, anti-Wall Street, anti-monopoly, anti-rich people uh, attack uh, aimed in, in a message to Congress. And what this does is this completely overshadows uh, Hughes's announcement. And someone comments to, uh, I think it's Mark Sullivan, the journalist and, and a great author and chronicler of these times, uh, to TR about what the effect of that was. And TR just chortles to Sullivan that, uh, you know, if you're going to play the game, you better know the rules, Mr. Hughes. And so uh, other people who knew him, I think like Henry Stoddard, another journalist, Uh, of the time, but a progressive said if there was any, uh, the, the least guy that TR wanted to succeed him in 1908 was Charles Evans Hughes. The great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated with Indians are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves. I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will day in and day out make fewer mistakes in governing themselves than any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern. 1912 David saw primaries Uh, first extensively used in the election of a president, at least for in, in, in terms of the party. Can you tell us a little bit of the history, why this was such an achievement for the progressive movement, and maybe give us some effects that it actually had in that 1912 election? The progressive movement is is a lot about process. It's Yes, it's about breaking up monopolies and pure food and drug laws and things like that. But it's aimed at municipal corruption and statewide machines uh, on a larger level. And the way that the people were not directly involved in choosing candidates. So... Or, or moving legislation. So the big things in the progressive era, the reforms, the process reforms, were the primary, uh, the initiative, and the referendum. The initiative, um, you know, these things have sort of not fulfilled their promise. You still see some of these things in, say, Massachusetts or California uh, being used to, to more extent than others. In New York State, There's very little of that. And I suspect in a lot of states, you don't see a lot of things being put on the ballot because of the uh, because of the public. Another thing was recall, the recall of state elections, again, of state officials, of municipal officials. You don't see that really used a lot. And we saw very recently where we tried or people in Wisconsin, Democrats, progressives in Wisconsin, tried to recall Governor Scott Walker, and that did not did not work at all. Now, with the primaries, more success there 
And pres- in terms of presidential elections, well, not much going on until 1912. They have barely been put in place. Uh, TR controls the process in 1908 uh, to choke off the uh, uh, whatever support Charles Evans Hughes is going to have. He basically is the boss at that time. And when he's the boss, he uses the boss sort of rules and makes um, things work in that way for his chosen successor, William Howard Taft. In 1912, the shoe is on the other foot. Taft controls all the machines. He controls the post offices. He controls the, uh, the, the patronage officials, the postmasterships. And so Roosevelt is the outsider. He it takes advantage of the primary system, but it's not that great a system because there's only a handful of primaries. It's not in every state. Um, in some states like New York, the people are going to people the behind uh, the Republican machines are going to still support Taft. In the South, where there is not much of a Republican party. Uh, at all, but they do have delegates to the convention. They're going to be controlled by Taft, as they were by Roosevelt for Taft uh, four years before. And in, but in the states where Taft and TR go head to head in a popular vote, Ta- Roosevelt is going to be the overwhelming winner. Now, some of those are beauty contests. By beauty contests, this means. Um, well, the people have spoken, but the guys in the back room still get to to name the delegates, and they're going to name the delegates for Taft. It's all a legal system. It's all it's not nefarious. It's not it's not crooked or fraudulent, but it's not a system that the progressives or TR likes. So that when the Republicans show up for convention in Chicago in 1912, um. TR will suggest that a bunch of these uh, delegates are are fraudulent. Uh, it's really overstated, um, but the outrage which is which engulfs the Roosevelt supporters uh, causes them to bolt the convention. Four hundred of the delegates in that convention do not even cast a vote; they abstain, and then they all basically walk out. A few weeks later. They reconvene in another convention, forming the Progressive Bull Moose Party. Now, interestingly enough, a few years later, or, or uh, two years later, when Roosevelt's people are contesting for control of the Republican Party in primaries, they find themselves beaten. They find themselves beaten by the regular Republicans. And you see Theodore Roosevelt writing to a friend of his or an associate of his, a guy named Oscar K. Davis, who's a, an official in the Progressive Party. And he's now saying, well, this progress, this primary thing really hasn't worked out like I thought it would. I think it should be used only in terms of very special occasions, very special occasions, meaning when his side wins. So... Uh, his uh, his uh, support for the primary system was certainly uh, off and on, and uh, when he didn't win, it was off. 
My question involves the presidential election of 1912. After TR failed to secure the Republican Party nomination, he pulls this audacious move of running as a third-party candidate. And my question for you, David, is what, in your assessment, is TR's motivation for this candidacy? Did he honestly think he could win the election? Uh, was he trying to simply advance his version of a progressive platform? Or was he trying to prevent a second Taft term at all costs? Uh, what do you consider the motivation for TR in this election? I'd have to say revenge. Uh, for He's a pretty savvy guy and often very pessimistic about his political chances. It's, it's quite remarkable to read some of what his uh, contemporaries, who uh, not contemporaries, but uh, intimates, people who were friends of his, would say about how down in the dumps he could get about his political chances. I mean, in 1904, when he wins a, a big landslide, he's thinking, gee, I don't know if I'm going to win again. Uh, so he's very scared about that. And so in 1912, it's hard to believe he fully thinks he can pull off a third party race. I, I think he's he's so cheesed off at Taft. He was, you know, cheesed off going into his primary challenges. And then after what happens in the convention, he's so mad at Taft. And you look at his uh, animus continues to toward a, a, another close friend of his, Elihu Root, who was uh he said was the most capable cabinet guy ever and who he wanted to be president even ahead of of uh, Taft. Uh, but uh, Root was too conservative and too old for the job, really. But so he's he's uh, angry at him for years. So I think it's the really the anger revenge factor, which is which is not a great way to uh, uh, affect public policy. And it's also be careful what you wish for, because uh, what he wishes for is Taft's defeat. And in that, he gets Woodrow Wilson, who he hates 10 times more than he ever hated uh, William Howard Taft. David, you take a very interesting angle by exploring the tragedies that mark much of Theodore Roosevelt's life. My question for you concerns his brother, Elliot. In what ways do you see the demise of Elliot playing a role in this narrative of tragedy for Theodore Roosevelt? Well, the uh, tragedy marks everyone's life. Everyone will have their relatives die. Um... The, the mortality rate for the human race is 100%. But certainly Theodore Roosevelt, at the beginning of his life, has more than his share of tragedy. The first one is really the death of his father. I think that, that impacts him a great deal. He loved his father a great deal. He said he was the greatest man he ever knew. Um, his brother Elliot, on the other hand, he might have said was the worst man he ever knew. Uh, until he met like William Howard Taft and uh, and Woodrow Wilson. But uh, Elliot was a drug addict, an alcoholic, a philanderer, uh, and all, agra- 
He was everything that TR really wasn't. He tries suicide about three times, and when he jumps out of a uh, mistress's uh, window on, I think, 103rd Street, West 103rd Street in the city, he doesn't die from that, but he dies from a seizure a few days later. No doubt uh, his suicide attempt uh, contributing to that. So Roosevelt, if he is not already inclined to be the straight arrow Victorian that he is, and he's really inclined to to be that person. That the bad example, I can think of some some examples in in my early life or childhood, where people would engage in well smoking and drinking, and I found them to be very positive counter examples. It's like I don't want to be involved in this, and so. I don't want to follow these things. And so I think with Roosevelt, it really um, fosters good habits in, in his life. One of the things we open up my TR's Last War book with is, is a lawsuit where he is uh, accused of being an alcoholic. A lot of people thought he was an alcoholic because he was so hyper. They thought he had to be drunk on something. And as Henry Adams said, the only thing T.R. Theodore Roosevelt is is drunk on is himself. <laughs> and uh, but but he was very much in control of of those forces and and passions uh, of that sort of ilk, but not not politically or of ambition. But then you move into the tragedy of. His mother and his wife dying uh, within 24 hours of each other. This is is probably the great tragedy. And it's one thing to have your mother die. And it's one thing to have your wife die. And to have them die at once. It's, it's amazing that he was not crushed by that. But this is when he goes out to the badlands of North Dakota and becomes something much more than the dude that he was when he goes to the New York State Assembly up there. He's the dude. He's not taken seriously because of that. Is he a manly guy? Or is he this, you know, this pipsqueak uh, with the uh, stuff, with the, with the wardrobe from Brooks Brothers and the accoutrements from Tiffany with this high speak, squeaky voice? Uh, and he's not that big, big a person. He's about 5'8 tops. Um, so, uh, but the fact that he's a cowboy, a rancher, an adventurer really moves him forward. And it's that tragedy of the death of his wife and mother, which moves him so much. And then you get, then you get the tragedy at the end, which is the death of his son, Kermit, uh, not Kermit, but Quentin Roosevelt, his youngest son and two sons who are other sons, not Kermit, but Theodore Jr. and Archie, Archibald, who are wounded very badly in the First World War. TR had campaigned to get America into the war, or at least be prepared for the war. He wanted to go fight in that war. He gets his war, and he pays a very terrible price for that.
let's keep it on the family tip Niall Gargan from Facebook said he'd be interested to know a little bit more about TR's relationship with FDR mostly looking at the reason why they were from opposing political parties I know the old story that FDR ran as a democratic simply because he said that they asked him to run for them in the state senate I'm wondering how true this is or if the two family factions had a bigger part to play in that. I would have thought that FDR would have followed the same political ideology or had TR's troubles with the Republican Party in the latter years dissuaded him from joining them. Well, the the two branches of the of the Roosevelt family are separated by geography. The Franklin Roosevelt's branch is centered in the Hudson Valley. TR's branch goes from New York City over to Long Island, but they are both, you know, uh, TR's family is Republican and Franklin's is well, at one point I think they had been there was a federalist in the in the group, but by the time of the of the Civil War, um Roosevelt's father is a Democrat. He's elected to office locally in Hyde Park as a Democrat, which must have been a a tremendously hard thing to do. And then FDR's half-brother, James Rosie Roosevelt, uh, receives an appointment from Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, uh, to be in the counselor service in the 1890s when uh TR visits the White House and visits Grover Cleveland as a very small child there's a great disparity in age between stepbrothers uh James Roosevelt and Franklin uh he's just a little kid he's like 5 or something and and Fra- and uh Grover Cleveland says to him I have a very odd wish for you I wish that you never grow up to be president <laughs> now whether uh, Cleveland knew he wasn't going to be a Grover Cleveland sort of Democrat or whether he just didn't he realized that the job was such a killing job uh, I'm not quite sure what that comment meant but Franklin was was always uh, of a Democrat bent he does support TR's bid for vice president when he is when Franklin is at Harvard and he votes for him in 1904 but he's approached to be a Democrat uh, senator a candidate for the state senate in 1910 and it's a great year to run as a Democrat uh, because uh, there was not another Democrat elected to that seat until this very decade and he could only hold it for for one term and that was a fluke so that'll tell you what that area is like so tr gets in sort of as a fluke because of the republican split in 1910 um and it's it's interesting that in 1912 this is something i ponder that tr who had or fdr who had supported f uh, tr earlier does not do so in 1912. He's already firmly cast his lot with the Democrats, so he's not going to bolt the Democrats in 1912. He's going to stick with Woodrow Wilson, and he gets rewarded by having his cousin, 
TR's old job in the Navy Department as Undersecretary of the Navy, given to him by Woodrow Wilson. They do get back together when TR is involved in a lawsuit, not the the lawsuit I mentioned earlier about whether he's a, a drunk or not, and he sues a newspaper editor in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for for libel, but he's sued uh, for slander for calling the Republican boss of Albany a, a crook, basically. And as a character witness, and not just a character witness, but as a witness to what goes on in Albany, T.R. has on his side of witness uh, witnesses Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt is willing to Franklin Roosevelt is willing to cross the aisle there and to be one of the better witnesses for for Theodore at this trial. And Theodore wins that trial. And uh, later on, in well, in nineteen uh, in during. Uh, the run-up to World War One, T.R. is going across the state and he's going to blast the Wilson administration and an invitation is tendered to him to, to stay at Hyde Park, to Springwood, uh, the Roosevelt home by uh, Franklin Roosevelt's mother. And T.R. realizes this is not the best move for Franklin and he begs off of it in a very, very... Uh, a uh, diplomatic and kindly way. It's a very, very good letter he sends. But TR and FDR are allies in the battle for preparedness in uh, up to World War uh, One, and uh, so they they are on the same page on that issue. Uh, although uh, they're all the twain does never meet between the Democrats and the Republicans in that family. So, David, the next question comes from James R. Early, who I believe is a high school history lecturer. If Roosevelt had survived long enough to run for president in 1920, do you think he would have won? Yes. In fact, uh, that's one of the premises of my one of my, my first book in this sort of series of presidential histories. 1920, it was called The Year of the Six Presidents. And a lot of people are few like, well, T.R. was dead that year. And yes, he was very dead. He had died in January 1919. And but the Republican Party came back together in a rush starting around 1918. And they're very hungry for, shall we say, power, uh, re-election victory. And the old line people were very willing to forget and forgive T.R. breaking up the party in 1912 and uh, his machinations in 1916. Actually, he was welcomed back in, in 1916 and was a, a star power campaigner for Charles Evans Hughes, although how effective he was is open to question because he may have scared a lot of pacifistic or isolationist voters away who feared that a, a Hughes administration would be sort of a front for a TR administration and we'd go galloping off to war, say, in April 1917, which is exactly what we did with Woodrow Wilson. So premise of your book is that he would have won. All the indices say that. But would he have continued the U.S.'s isolationist policy after World War One if he'd become president for a second time, David? 
Ah, people are very much contradictory. And so while Theodore Roosevelt wants us to get into World War One against the Germans, um, what he is by the time the war ends. And, you know, there's an old song in an old Marx Brother movie where Groucho sings, whatever it is, I'm against it. And he are at some point, whatever Woodrow Wilson was for, he was against it. So where earlier in the teens, he had come out for systems of international cooperation, he turns against that. He's for treaties of our treaties of our arbitration when he's president. He's against them when Wilson and Bryan are doing them. And he turns against the idea of, I think he has a different word for it, but he's for the concept of a League of Nations early on. But when Wilson comes out with his League of Nations, he's against it. And so from his sickbed in Roosevelt Hospital in Manhattan in late 1918, he gets a visit from Henry Cabot Lodge and we have the testimony of TR's younger sister Corinne that uh, Lodge and TR are plotting strategy uh, against Wilson's uh, League of Nations so the answer is yes he would have been isolationist on that level maybe not on other levels because after all he's TR but certainly against the League of Nations as it was proposed by Woodrow Wilson. Next question comes from the Facebook group, and this is Joe Jamsky. Um, And I suppose this is a a question which is very much rooted in modern American politics. Um, I would be curious to know if Roosevelt said anything interesting about the Second Amendment. Ha! I doubt if he did because I don't think it was much of an issue back then. I mean, some things just aren't an issue. You know, what did James Buchanan have to say about the 17th Amendment or, um, you know, Jefferson about the 18th? Uh, You know, obviously looking forward is looking different than looking backwards, but some things are just issues at different times in our history. And the Second Amendment, uh, TR being the great white hunter in Africa and on the Great Plains and all that, um, boy, I don't think he would have been um, for much of gun control at that point. And there really wasn't a great deal, even though New York State has one of the earliest gun control laws, actually the earliest in the uh, country, it was put forward by uh, a Tammany leader of the Lower East Side, who, uh, despite their political differences, uh, his name was Big Tim Sullivan, and uh, the Sullivan Act uh, is named after him, and T.R. and Sullivan were actually close friends. Uh, T.R. mentions uh, Sullivan uh, quite favorably uh, in one of his memoirs. Another question from Joe Jamsky. Now, um, David, are you a fan of WWE? Let me introduce to you the one, the only, 
Who is it? Is <laughs> the immortal Hulk Hogan! WWD E World Wrestling Entertainment, I believe it's I I shall have to say no. <laughs> I am not. All right. Here is the question, and then let's work backwards and try and work out an answer. Okay. Obviously, he's throwing this in for fun. Uh, Joe Jamsky says, ask him which president would win a WWE Royal Rumble. Now, basically... I believe that's when all the wrestlers jump into the ring and there could be like 20 of them and they all fight each other and they throw each other out one by one and you're left with a winner. I believe that that's the, uh, that's the setup. So um, imagine all the presidents are in there. They're all in their prime, okay? Um, who's going to be left standing? Gerald Ford. <laughs> he he was a specimen in his day, wasn't he? He was he an absolute was specimen. A, probably the best physical specimen of all the presidents. He was a, a big time um, football player at Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been he was a male model, I believe. Okay, based on his physique. Um, another uh, very physical president is Ronald Reagan. Really? Remember that Reagan's first job in life, really, except maybe some odd job in a store, was to mm-hmm. be a lifeguard. Oh yes. And in in Dixon, Illinois, and he saved an incredible number of lives uh, over the course of several years. So he'd be right up there. TR certainly would be as well. TR is the boxer. Okay. Mm-hmm. He'd be up there. Uh, he boxed as, as governor of New York and as president of the United States. That's how he loses an eye, the sight in one eye, uh, in the White House when he's uh, boxing with a, a young naval officer. And let's not forget the rail splitter, Abraham Lincoln. So, um, you know, that there's, there's a pretty impressive foursome of guys who you wouldn't physically want to mess with. I'm trying to think of somebody else. Well, George Washington. George Washington, big dude. Uh, uh, um, A fellow who had a temper, uh, but he worked all his life to control it, was the greatest horseman in America uh, during his lifetime. So he'd be right up there as well. No question about it. Um, there's got to be some Democrat. I'm I'm leaving out <laughs> Democratic presidents, but I, I'm not quite sure uh, who I who I would put into that into that mix. Not not Franklin Roosevelt or Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jack Kennedy has has really too many physical limitations, and and Harry Truman, uh, if you took his glasses off, couldn't find the guy he was wrestling. <laughs> it's um, Reagan was um, a cheerleader as well, wasn't he? I'm not sure if he was a cheerleader. He was also a baseball announcer. So he has a a, a kind of two-sport um, background, one of which is as a commentator, and the other... Uh, I think he was also a football player at, mm. at, at, in college. So... And Eisenhower. Eisenhower also played football and baseball. And Eisenhower played professional baseball under an assumed name. 
So he was quite the athlete as well. And William no, Howard Taft could just sit on you. Well, I, I, that's where I was actually going to go with this. But then I did say in their prime, and he got big much, much later on. But props to you, sir, for answering a jokey question with such detail. You know, yet again, sir, I'll take my hat off to you. Thank you. Now, the next question comes from Beirut, and it's Brent. Greetings, this is Brent in Beirut. TR is known for his strenuous life and his extreme activity, but by all accounts, he did as much reading and writing as any president in our history. And my question for you, David, is do you think that we perhaps overlook TR as one of the great minds, the great thinkers to serve in the presidency? Yeah, we do. Uh, because he's so flamboyant. He's also the most bookish. He's the most bookish in terms of writing the most books and starting very early on. His first tome is as a kid where he's writing about, I think, the uh, uh, birds of Long Island or the North Shore of Long Island, some little monograph. And when he's in his early 20s, he writes the Naval History of the War of 1812, which is still the standard work on that topic. Um, and he goes on from there writing about issues. He has a newspaper column. He's a magazine editor. He writes his memoirs. He writes his adventures on the African game trail in the Badlands, on and on and on and on. You know, compare that to Franklin Roosevelt, who who really is a, a non-literary president. Nixon writes quite a few books after leaving the White House, or at least puts his name on them. But Theodore Roosevelt really does write them, and he's such a voracious reader. He's uh, Truman is a great reader as well, despite his his both of them have very bad eyesight, and both of them are great readers. And and uh, Truman's experiences is that it said that he read every book in the Independence Missouri Library when he was a kid. And T.R. just keeps reading all the time. If he has a spare minute, he pulls out a book and he can read a book uh, in a day. And he did. Uh, and he could remember them. That's that's the thing which is really overlooked is he has this photographic memory which is which is almost beyond human capabilities there's the story told of where he's at a, a dinner and somebody thinks aha aha i i finally have a topic where he won't know something about and i think it's a it's a woman and she makes a, a comment about uh, that she'd been reading something about icelandic literature and for a brief moment TR draws back and is silent and then all of a sudden he comes out with all this data on Icelandic literature. I mean, it, it's really quite remarkable. And I think this memory helps him immeasurably in terms of a political career because he can also remember things about people. And if you can remember a detail about a person you met maybe once six years ago, you know, that's going to really impress them and draw them to you personally. And and I think that's a big part of this this charisma that he has, not just the trust busting, but 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 on a personal one to one level. It's interesting you ended up by talking about being drawn to somebody 
uh, through their charisma. The one thing that surprised me when we did our TR show together is you said you're exhausted by him and you think somewhat that his reputation was a little bit overblown. Now, he wrote a book, The Naval War of 1812, and he published it in 1882, which established his reputation both as a learned historian and a writer. That's you, isn't it, David? You're a, his- you're a learned historian and a writer. Uh, why, why do you feel so cold towards RTR? Why so cold? Hmm. Well, I think, I think ideologically there, there's a gulf between us. And originally, as I may have mentioned in that show, he was my first uh, yeah. idol. He was the, yeah. my favorite president as, as a kid because, hey, look at everything he did uh, uh, in, uh, in terms of foreign affairs or the Panama Canal or peacemaking or being a cowboy and a war hero and all of that. But I think that he, if, if you take a look at all his strengths, and I mentioned this to somebody once, I don't know if it was in a, I don't think it was an on-air interview. Maybe it was just in an email thing. And, and I said, you know, he may have been weakest in terms of the constitutional framework of the government. Um, he, he certainly said in terms of economics, he was an agnostic that he, he didn't have quite strong opinions on them, on, on, on such issues. So he, he has his, his weaknesses. And I think he sets in motion, uh, the, the train of the, uh, great aggrandizement of power by the federal government, which, which I think has been destructive of, of, of a lot of things in, in the, in the terms of, of the country where it's, it's weakened local institutions and, and private institutions. I don't think he would have wanted all of that to, to happen, but I don't, I think it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen as, as easily without a charismatic figure like him, uh, at, at the head of that. I mean, there are things in the air, uh, when he assumes the presidency which are moving in that direction, but they're moving in that direction from, you know, prairie populists like Brian or muckrakers or, or socialists. Um, and, but, but he puts that patrician establishment Republican stamp on it and, and makes it happen. Okie dokie. Right. So we're kind of uh, coming to the end and um, we've got a question from somebody and you might recognize their voice david thank you very much for doing the show i really liked it i was curious what your thoughts on what tr's true legacy should be there's a lot of people who look at him as this hawk and this really boy scout on steroids but most of his legacies that really stick with us today are things like brokering the peace between russia and japan the panama canal which was a very pragmatic move what are your thoughts there who is the real tr there's many TRs. I remember this uh, cartoon. Uh, I think it may have been done at his death. It was in, in this wonderful little book by Will and Ariel Durant, a pictorial history of the American presidents, which really 
you know, got me going on on the topic of the presidency. And it showed a a whole bunch of TRs in all these different roles. You know, what you said, peacemaker and warrior and jingoist and and conservationist and explorer and author, um, reformer. All in one, and it, and underneath it said, uh, it quoted Shakespeare that in his in his life a man plays many parts, and I think no president played more parts than than Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, so what people do is they grab a part of him that they like, so that the more progressive folks uh, will say trustbuster or uh, reformer, uh, civil service reformer, etc. And the, the conservatives will say uh, strong American defense, uh, traditional values, etc., etc., etc. And so you know you can have any any number of those. You there are some folks where it works positively, where the right hooks onto something and the left hooks onto something, and then there's some folks where it works negatively and I'm staring right now believe it or not at a Lyndon B Johnson for president button and it works absolutely in the wrong direction for him where both the right and the left have reasons to despise him but with TR it it works differently in terms of the of the of his true legacy I think it's probably almost as a as a personality as somebody who transcends all the all the parts and it is just this larger-than-life figure. All right, and uh, the very last question. Curious, TR is uh, very much an enigma and, you know, very interesting character. A lot of people would point to his leadership of the Rough Riders as probably his prime and when he was his happiest, but there's a lot of other things he did from visiting the Panama Canal under construction and being a rancher out west. When do you think he was happiest in his life? Boy, you may be on to something with that question about being happiest as being a soldier on the ground. Um, Because what's the title which he cherishes the most? It's not president or author or governor. It's colonel. Colonel Roosevelt. And that's the... uh, you know, one of the titles or variant on that by of, of the uh, Edmund Morris trilogy. And you see towards the end of his life, the post-presidential period, where he is referred in all the newspapers over and over again as Colonel Roosevelt. It's quite remarkable for a guy who bore the title of, of president. And he has a conversation with a guy named Jack Greenway, I think in the 1912 campaign. Greenway was a rough rider. And Greenway says, you remember when we were in Cuba and a fellow, one of our our comrades was shot in the chest and was propped up against a tree and was dying and how you were comforting him and whether it was a great thing to be dying in combat. And TR says, yes. And and Greenway says, "I've, I've always been afraid to ask you this, but did you really want to die in combat there? And, and TR slams his fist on, on a table and says, yes, yes, I did. I, it's like, so he has this death wish about him and it's tied up with being a soldier and this sort of, you know, almost Wagnerian Gotterdammerung way to end a life most gloriously. And, and he has some statements early on in the 1890s before he goes off 
and talks about uh, this is like you know the highest form of of, of life, which is to die this way. Uh, it, it's 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 quite shocking in some ways. So that's us, David. We've come to the end of our show. We've done two episodes on one of the towering figures of American history. Dear listener, if you haven't already written us um, a glowing review on a podcatcher of your choice, why don't you go on to said podcatcher of choice and go and write us a a five-star review. Um, You can follow the progress of me and uh, the show by simply going onto Twitter and typing in 10USP. That's the numbers 10USP. We do have um, quite a vibrant Facebook group so if you're into Facebook, simply type in 10 American Presidents and hit join. And you can get lots of kind of behind the scenes info, who's agreed to come onto the show. You can even um, submit an application to even read out one of the newspaper readings on the show. So there's lots of reasons to join our Facebook group. Um, I've been Royfield Brown, sat with Dave Petrusha. See you all again soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.